Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books Network. This is Carmen Gomez Galisteo, and today I have the pleasure to have with me Christina Rice, author of Mean, Moody, Madison, Jane Russell, and the Marketing of a Hollywood Legend, published by the University Press of Kentucky. So thank you very much, Christina, for joining us today, and welcome. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Excited to talk about Jane. So, Christina Rice is the author of Meme, Moody Magnificent, Jane Russell, and the Marketing of a Hollywood Legend, and also of Underwrack, Hollywood's Forgotten Rebel, and multiple issues of the My Little Pony comic book series. She began her career as a librarian with the Los Angeles Public Library in 2005, and has been overseeing the library's historic photo collection since 2009. And this is a personal curiosity. It doesn't have to, be, uh, it doesn't have to, to do with Jane, but what is being a librarian like? Because uh, that's something that has always fascinated me and I think that would be my dream job. Yeah, oh, it absolutely is a dream job. And librarians can do so many different things. So when I started with the Los Angeles Public Library, I was at one of our community branches. And so you're, you know, you're dealing with the collections and helping people at the desk. And then I transfer to our gorgeous Central Library. So anybody, when you visit Los Angeles, you have to come downtown and visit Central Library. It's almost 100 years old. There are seven floors of public space. It's just a gorgeous, like, funky deco-ish Egyptian architecture building. And so um, I worked in our history department. So that would be helping people with like research questions and to find books. And then when I took over the photo collection, it was an absolute dream job. So now I deal with the collection of 4 million photos with the history of Los Angeles. And I get to help people all around the world with their photo projects. So um, yeah, I, I think I have one of the best jobs in the world. Yeah, definitely. We are being surrounded by books and in that beautiful building and everything. So, wow. Yeah, that, that is my, my dream job. If I, if I switch uh, careers, that, that will be my my goal, being a librarian. So, uh, 
dealing with uh, Jane Russell, who is uh, the topic of, of your book and our talk. So Jane Russell uh, wrote her, her own biography and also her life is quite well documented. We have uh, clips of her interviews. And uh, was it helpful when writing the book, having so much material or just the opposite, having Jane tell her own story and so many articles? Uh, was this a challenge, finding something new about her, something original for you to say? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it was a benefit and a challenge. Um, you know, having, you know, my, as you mentioned, my, my first book was on Anne Dvorak, and she was somebody who was not documented. You know, v there was very little docu documentation on her, and it took me 15 years to research Anne, and there was so much digging, and every little morsel I found, you know, I think I included in the book. And so with Jane, it was the exact opposite in that she has just been hyper-documented, And so, and that was a little bit intimidating at first, like having this biography that she wrote and thinking, well, gosh, does there really need to be a book on her if she already told her story? And as, as a biographer, one of the really nice things about Jane Russell is that she, she's a very reliable narrator. That's not always the case with, with movie stars that write their memoirs. Um, Jane really just told her story. I think she hoped people could benefit from her story and learn things and, you know, kind of maybe um, acknowledge their own mistakes. So Jane didn't sugarcoat. She didn't gloss things over. She didn't try to present herself in the best light. She just presented her. And as a biographer, that, that was a gift to have something that frank. And, but going through all of the material, reading her book, um, you know, having somebody's perspective and, and Jane just kind of, you know, writing her memories was fantastic and kind of bearing her emotions was really great. And, and that tended to be when I would quote her biography was when she was really kind of bearing those raw emotions at some of the really difficult points in her life. But in kind of looking at her story as a whole, No, I, I felt that there was a lot to, to piece together. I think the story of The Outlaw, you know, the first film that she did, which was this Howard Hughes opus, I don't think I ever fully understood the, the timeline of it. And so I think I was able to do that and kind of present, hey, this is what was going on with this movie. And this is why, you know, in the movie, she looks really young, but yet there's like all this publicity for the movie where she's clearly a lot older, what the heck was going on. So yeah, there certainly was a lot to glean there. Um, and there was, I think, a lot about her personal life and her work um, with her Waif Foundation that I don't think had really been truly explored. So, um, but at the same time, having a mountain, like an avalanche of information about her, because she was, you know, she was a movie star from the time she was 19 and, you know, in 1941 until she passed away in 2011. So having all of that um, was so different an experience from writing the book on Anne that I had to leave a lot out so I couldn't include everything. So it was certainly a blessing on one hand and a curse on the other. Um, but in the end, I absolutely think that um, the book that I wrote is a wonderful complement to Jane's own memoir. Wow, what a, what a challenge! Because from going from one uh, one person about uh, about whom so little research, uh, so so little uh, so so little material was, and then finding such a treasure of material for uh, for for Jane. So that is a big uh, difference. That when one is researching, one doesn't really know what is better to have a lot of material uh, that you have to classify and 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 find, or or no, to have little material that and you have to find very hard and dig. But wow, what, what, what a contrast. <laughs> 
oh, it was a huge contrast. So maybe, you know, maybe the next person I write about, if I could, if I, if I could meet them in the middle, meet the two in the middle, <laughs> I think that would be great. Yeah, yeah, something like that. Well, I, I think that maybe uh, less is more because it happened to me with my dissertation that I have a, I have a classmates that they were writing on authors who had written extensively and they were still alive and they continued writing and adding to their, to their literary works. And they say, oh, there, there are so many novels that I have to analyze. And I was like, well, I, I am analyzing two authors in my dissertation, but they only wrote one book each. So, so there, there is nothing more. So at least that, that is it. So finding so much material, yeah, maybe as you say, something in the middle. Yeah, exactly. And you write that she was a very contradictory person. Which, which were some of her contradictions? Yeah, I, I think she, she was like fabulously contradictory in many ways. So, you know, she's really known, you know, because of the way, you know, she, she was under contract to Howard Hughes for all of her career. And he was somebody who really promoted her as, as a sex symbol, you know, just the, the campaign for the outlaw, like really focused on her breasts. <laughs> she, you know, that, that was what a lot of people, when you say the name Jane Russell, the, they immediately associate her with that. And so even though she had this absolute sex symbol movie star image, um, in real life, she was she was a very conservative person. You know, she was conservative politically. Um, she was very religious. So she was, you know, a, like a born-again Christian and, um, you know, was was incredibly devout. And that was, you know, in, in direct opposition to what her screen image was. But I think she was somebody who was very good at compartmentalizing the two. So, you know, this was who she was in her personal life. This was what the screen image was. And to her, they were just two completely different things. And I think she identified early on that even though she maybe didn't always agree with how Howard Hughes promoted her, and sometimes she would, you know, get pushed to her limits and would actually battle him on that. Um, I think she also understood that, you know, her looks and her physique were kind of like her, her bread and butter and gave her the career that she had. And because she had the career and because she was a movie star, um, it enabled her to do a lot of other things in her life. So, you know, she would often talk about how she could just get the red carpet treatment and that helped her later on, you know, with the work that she did um, with orphanages and, and, and the foster care system in the United States. So I think she was always... Um, she was always very good at balancing that. And just one of the incredible, I, I, what I found incredible about Jane for as big a movie star as she was. And as I mentioned, starting when she was like 19 years old, like her photo was circulated, her photos were circulated around the world. Um, she was always incredibly down to earth. Like she was not an egotistical person at all. So um, even though she was this world renowned super glamorous like glamazon movie star um i think she's totally somebody you could just like just sit at a bar and just throw back a martini with um she was just incredible and something that i found very curious is like the, the vast majority of uh, classic hollywood actors they, they changed their real names because they were too ethnic or or whatever and uh, but uh, but hers is just the opposite because her birth name is uh, jane russell but however she claimed that her birth name was ernestine jane geraldine russell so why did she uh, try to modify her her birth name <laughs> Yeah, I you know I don't know if that's something that she did on purpose or if her family. So her 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 mother's name was Ernestine, her aunt, her beloved aunt. Oh, sorry, her mother was Geraldine, her aunt was Ernestine, and so I don't know if she would just throw that out in tribute to them or if when she was a 
kid. Her mother just told her that was her name, but her birth certificate says Jane Russell and her mom um, later said that when she named Jane, she just simply named her Jane Russell because she thought it would look good in lights. So her mother, from from like the moment Jane was born, um, envisioned Jane having this entertainment career. Geraldine had been um, a, a performer in her own right. You had had a very modest stage career, and so just said Jane Russell would look great in lights. And so just at some point, I don't know if it was just early on with the publicity that they would have added the extra names. Um, but that birth certificate absolutely just simply says Jane Russell and it always did look great in lights. Yeah, maybe she felt like like a shame because she had her real name and the others had colorful stories about their their stage names or whatever. So it, it is very curious that, that that her real name is really Jane Russell because at this time, I think that she may be like, like the only actor at the time who had her real name. I think she, yeah, I think you make a good point that she was one of the, yeah, and Dvorak, that certainly wasn't her name. So yeah, I think you make a good point that she, yeah, she just had it, you know, and clearly, I mean, if, if Howard Hughes didn't think it was a great movie star name, he would have changed it. So I think um, because Howard Hughes approved, she just got to be Jane Russell. Yeah, and and also, uh, well, also Hollywood legends all, all the time is that oh, the the actor that is uh, like uh, discovered by accident. N- nobody nobody went to to California to want to be an actor. No, everybody was discovered by accident while they were having another job or another profession or whatever. And Hollywood legend has it that uh, Jane was discovered when she was working for for a dentist as the receptionist. But you say that this is a piece of uh, Hollywood propaganda. So how did she get into the movies? Because you. Mentioned that her mother um, always thought about that, about a possible career for for her in the movies. Yeah, so her yeah, so she was not discovered in a dentist office, even though a lot of the publicity of the time that was something Howard Hughes you know threw out um, that he that he he found her in a dentist office in the valley, which why Howard Hughes would be at a dental office in the valley is is beyond me. Um, but yeah, so she was raised, you know, I think with her mom nudging her towards an entertainment career, and Jane frequently wavered, so she wasn't somebody. Um, who dreamed of being a movie star. I think she, you know, growing up in Los Angeles and in the San Fernando Valley, she certainly um, was on the fringe of it. And she had friends in the Valley whose parents worked in the film industry. So, you know, it was something that was there and was a possibility and something that, you know, I don't know that Jane was ever super impressed with, but maybe she wanted to do it. So she frequently wavered. Um, she did attend a couple of acting schools. There was the Max Reinhardt acting school that she went to on Sunset Boulevard, and she thought it was kind of a joke. So she ended up ditching it and going across the street to bowl. And then um, and then she kind of got caught with the acting bug again and studied under um, Maria Aspenkaya. And... Uh, and, you know, and Maria thought Jane, you know, if Jane just wasn't quite so lazy, she probably had some potential. So, you know, Jane kind of toyed with it, but at the same time was not, wasn't ambitious and wasn't really chasing it the way a lot of, um, the way a lot of the actors in, in Hollywood did and still do. And, but she did fall into modeling. So a friend of Jane's um, got connected with a photographer named Tom Kelly, and many people know him because he shot the nude photos of Marilyn Monroe on Red Velvet. So, you know, he um, was was, uh, hired one of Jane's friends as a model and the friend brought Jane with her and Tom Kelly saw Jane, you know, who's just naturally 
just gorgeous and wanted to use her as a model, um, not for nudes. Jane wouldn't do that, but to use her for fashion. And so Jane started modeling and he, Tom Kelly, taught her, you know, how to pose in front of the camera which is incredibly important. And so one day there was an agent named Levis Green who was always kind of, you know, trying to find new talent around town. And he would frequently visit Tom Kelly's studio and say, Tom, like, what models do you have? You know, who can I, who can I take a look at? And he walked into Tom Kelly's studio and it happened to be when Howard Hughes was casting for the outlaw at the time Howard Hawks was signed on to direct. And so the two of them were looking for um, an unknown actress to cast in the outlaw and uh, Levis Green walked into the Tom, Tom Kelly's office and saw a photo of Jane. And it wasn't even a body shot of Jane. It was actually a really close-up photo of Jane, like almost snarling, you know, with that just Jane to hell with it attitude. And saw her and said, hey, this girl, who's this? And Tom Kelly said, no, no, she's she's a nice girl. Um, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to have you use silver box go after her and uh the agent swiped the photo off the wall showed it to howard hawks and howard hawks said get this girl in for a screen test and she went and did the screen test you know and she and she she actually did prepare for it so when opportunity came to jane she would embrace it so maybe she didn't chase opportunity but opportunity very frequently fell into her lap you know and and she later jokingly said her book should have been subtitled the queen came through the back door because that's how she always felt she was just kind of rolling in through the back door and stuff happened to her and she she got the role in the outlaw and howard hughes just absolutely adored her and that that launched her incredibly weird career and made her an international movie star so, so in a manner of speaking, she, she was discovered, but just not in a dentist office. No, when, when she was a model, which is quite different. Yeah, but it, it doesn't have like these kind of uh, accidental or <laughs> accidental uh, idea that nobody wants to be an actor, but they are not trying to, to be famous or, or whatever. So, well, it, it is maybe the dentist appointment is more, <laughs> is more, more I don't know, more serendipitously or, or something yes. like that. Yeah. So, and well, it, it looked like everything was going to be easy from then on because she signed a contract and she made this movie the outlaw but uh, then as, as you mentioned the, the publicity for, for the movie is she looks much older because the movie was not released until many years later so how did it happen why was it a, in a drawer or somewhere without without being released yeah well I mean what, what happened was Howard Hughes <laughs> like incredibly eccentric Howard Hughes and so you know the movie started filming at the end of 1940. And again, Howard Hawks was supposed to be the director and the two of them had worked together um, in Scarface 10 years before, starring Anne Dvorak. And uh, they were shooting on location in Arizona and just immediately um, Hawks and Hughes started clashing um, on you know, creative differences. And so Howard Hawks walked off the picture and told Howard Hughes, you know what, you should just direct it yourself. And Howard Hughes said, that's a great idea. And so Hughes directed it. <clears throat> and um, I mean, Jane would later say that it took like, you know, I think nine months to shoot it. And it didn't take that long. <clears throat> but he did end up going and doing a lot of reshoots. And he was just very like methodical. And at the end of the day, he really wasn't a director. And so he just ended up like taking his time with it. And it's kind of a mystery. Um, you know, I think he, he did get, you know, because Howard Hughes was, he had companies that were involved in the aviation industry. And so, 
you know, with the war in Europe ramping up. And then finally, when the United States gets involved in the war, he gets waylaid. And so he's not paying as much attention to the movie stuff as he is his wartime contracts. And so he just strung it along. And I think he felt that if he built up enough, um, anticipation for the movie it would be a huge hit but he had distribution problems originally fox was going to distribute the outlaw and because he dragged his feet for so long um you know they backed out of it and so he it ended up getting like a modest it it like ended up premiering in 43 and it played in san francisco for a few weeks and then he pulled it and then it got like a really modest release um through united artists in 46 and it played a little bit and then finally in 1950 once he had a controlling interest in rko then like almost a full decade later it was released um on a much more bigger scale. So it is, it's just, the whole thing is such an oddity. And very early on, <clears throat> he did decide that Jane was going to be the cornerstone of the advertising campaign. And he hired a gentleman named Russell Birdwell, who was just a master publicist and had um, orchestrated this, the search for Scarlet campaign for Gone with the Wind a few years earlier that it kept Gone with the Wind in the news. And so Russell Birdwell was just off and running with Jane. And, you know, for the first year or so, like she just did um, photo shoots. So there are just, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of photos of Jane the first couple of years of her career. And he just made sure that she was on the cover of just magazines and that it was just um, her photo was distributed all over the world. And, you know, so for the first few years of her career, you know, between 41 and 48, you know, the outlaw kind of came out and then she had another movie, The Young Widow which, you know, was um, not not much of a, a role for her and it wasn't a big movie. Two year, two movies that she had for almost a full decade. And yet she was a household name and everybody knew who she was. And that was because of that massive outlaw publicity campaign, which, you know, all these years later, I don't know that people talk about the film, The Outlaw, that much because the film itself is is really odd and isn't particularly good, but people still absolutely talk about that publicity campaign. Like that's how much staying power that campaign has had, um, you know, 80 years later. So, yeah, I suppose it must have been frustrating because the movie is made and nobody's watching it. So I suppose people were asking, where is the movie? When is it going to to come out finally? (laughs) Yeah. And her nickname, like the press started calling Jane the motionless picture actress. Because there are all the photos of her and, and no film. Yeah, and it certainly was frustrating. And for her at some point, you know, she, she in the middle of all this, got married um, to uh, Robert Waterfield, who she had known since high school. And and she actually, you know, just tried to be kind of a, a, a housewife for a while um, and was just like bored out of her mind and, and you know, Finally, you know, in, in 1948, she gets cast in The Pale Face opposite Bob Hope. And from then on, like, she actually does end up having um, a pretty respectable film career. And, uh, well, uh, yeah, but, um, and, and it was, as, as you say, it was surprising that even though her movie had not been released, thanks to these publicists, uh, she was very, very well known, uh, even if she was well known for not having a, a movie. So, but but she's better known for gentlemen preferred plans. And when I was reading your, your book and, and I was telling people, oh, I am reading this biography about uh, Jane Russell, people were like, who is she? And then I was like, oh, gentlemen preferred plans. Yeah, but the blonde was uh, Marilyn Monroe. They told me and I said, yeah, yeah. 
yeah, but but it is the other, the brunette. And they were like, ah, oh, okay, now I know who she is. So because she is not so, so popular in Spain, but thanks to this movie, she's remembered forever. So how was filming the, the, the movie? Um, did, she, did she get along with Marilyn Monroe? Oh, yeah. So that movie. And I think for even here in America, I think if people know who she is, it, it's going to be for Gentlemen Prefer Blondes or the Playtex bra commercials she made in the 70s and 80s because she was a spokesperson. She was like very tongue in cheek was a spokesperson for Playtex bras. But yeah, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes is, you know, I, I think it's you, you can't even argue that it is her best movie. Um, it was her personal favorite movie. And Jane felt that it was um, the most representative of her on the screen. Um, it was directed by Howard Hawks. So, you know, Jane did not get to make the outlaw with him. But over a decade later, she, she got to, to film this movie with Howard Hawks, and she was thrilled. And it was an absolute joy for her to make. Um, she got along so well with Marilyn. She absolutely adored Marilyn. You know, this was Marilyn's real breakout role. So she'd been at Fox for a few years. She had done Niagara, um, and and Marilyn's star was certainly on the rise. But this was the film that just cemented Marilyn as just an international icon. Um, but she was still, um, you know, suffering from. You know, she she had her insecurities, which kind of plagued her her entire life. And so, really early on in the filming. Um, there started to be an issue with Marilyn not getting um, out on set on time. And she, Marilyn would show up at the crack of dawn and have her, her makeup man, Whitey Snyder, you know, do her, you know, do her makeup. She, she would be there so early. Jane who valued sleep above many other things would come in at the last possible minute. Like she had it timed where she could kind of roll in an hour before they were supposed to shoot and her, her makeup crew like could just get her done quickly. And so Jane, Jane was always very professional Jane was so confident and so comfortable in her own skin that she was just always ready to roll. But once Marilyn's makeup man started to identify, oh no, I think we were going to start having a problem because Marilyn would just be so nervous. Like she was such a nervous wreck that even though she got to the studio early, even though she was ready to go, it took a lot for her to actually drag herself out there. <clears throat> and so Marilyn's makeup man, Whitey Snyder, went to Jane's makeup man, Shotgun Britain because they all had great names apparently back then and said, Hey, I think we might start to have a problem. Is there any way Jane could, you know, maybe talk to Marilyn and put her at ease. And so shotgun told Jane, Hey, you know, this is the issue. And Jane said, ah, I'll take care of it. And so every morning Jane would walk over to Marilyn's trailer, knock on the door and just say, Hey, Blondel, time to go. Come on. And Marilyn would just pop out and go, okay. And they would walk to the set together. You know, Jane, again, was so devoid of ego. So it, you know, she, she didn't need to be the last one to show up. And so she was perfectly fine, you know, just grabbing Marilyn, bringing her along. And, you know, for Howard Hawks, it, you know, it, it was very, you know, that it was very deliberate on his part that he, he did cast Jane. So, you know, Marilyn was under contract to Fox and he talked to Zanuck and said this would be a great role for Marilyn and said, but you know what, I need somebody really strong who can kind of prop Marilyn up. And, you know, and it needed to be somebody who wasn't egotistical because the role of Lorelai Lee, I mean, that's, you know, that's the character that like runs away with that film. And when you watch it as gorgeous as Jane is, it's really hard to keep your eyes off of Marilyn. And so that just didn't matter to Jane. And so, you know, she served the purpose that Howard Hawks wanted her to serve, where she was like amazing on screen and a great, you know, companion to Marilyn on screen, but 
off screen was a great companion as well and just encouraged Marilyn and just kind of had patience with her and shepherded her along. So it was just, um, I think they were just, you know, while they were filming as close as sisters, you know, they, you know, kind of kept in touch later on. But as Jane said, Marilyn, you know, Marilyn's circle of friends, I think just, you know, shifted so often during the course of her life. But it was just, I think, a great experience for everybody around the board. Um, I think the result is, you know, my opinion, the greatest buddy picture to ever be made. And Jane always had great things to say about Marilyn. And, you know, and later on, you know, because Jane lived till 2011, she was constantly being, you know, asked, you know, she was constantly being interviewed about Marilyn and would just always talk about her, would always tell her stories over and over, never got tired of it and was always just really complimentary. So I think it's just a, just a beautiful example of these just two incredible women supporting each other. And um, I think that should serve as a model for, for all of us women. Yeah, because they could have been rivals, or as you say, there could have been envy or jealousy or whatever. But because Marilyn was stealing the picture, but but no, they they got along really nicely. So that is, I suppose, it mustn't have been easy. Yeah, but it was you know. But again, like Jane, just Jane was she just rolled with it, so that you know. Again, because I think Jane, she had a very secure upbringing, you know, she had, you know, four younger brothers. So she was kind of like a mother hen to these four younger brothers. She had, you know, very supportive parents. Like she unfortunately lost her father when she was 16, but she just had such, um, you know, and she had a close circle of friends, you know, that she knew before she was a movie star. And so I think Jane always felt very secure, always had a, a support system that always kept her grounded. And I think she identified early on in Marilyn that Marilyn didn't have that. Like she wasn't raised with that stability. She wasn't raised with that support system. And so, you know, she was able to have a lot of empathy for Marilyn and and to kind of understand where she was coming from. And, and I think always just felt, felt bad that Marilyn didn't have the support that she herself had. And apart from her from her movie career, she also performed in many theaters, and she also had a career in music, didn't she? Yeah. So Jane, I think even more than acting, she loved to sing, and you know during that period where she wasn't making movies in the '40s, like she finally told Howard Hughes, like, "Hey, I'm gonna go start performing," and so she would do um, like cabaret shows, uh, you know, in in theaters all around, and she would, she performed in Vegas. Um, she would do you know like USO tours with Bob Hope, and then she would record starting in the 1940s. Um, she she recorded so there's lots of you know original recordings of her um she in the 50s um paired up with a few other performers and they had a um it was either like a trio or a quartet that would do like christian christian pop songs and she traveled the world performing with that and even you know at the end of her life she she had moved up to santa maria where one of her kids was living and she was bored out of her mind so she went to she contracted with a hotel um to do a cabaret show and she was doing that up until i think like the, the final week of her life so jane absolutely um she loved to sing loved to perform and was just an absolute kick so yeah that that was a huge part of her career which i don't think a lot of people are aware of that that music for for decades was was a huge part of jane 
And uh, she also adopted uh, several children, and it was not easy. Actually, it was complicated because she also caused, she almost caused a diplomatic incident with the Britain because she was accused of stealing British babies and importing them into the USA. But then she she became an advocate for orphan children and funded an, an organization to help bring foreign children to be adopted by by U.S. parents. So how how did it happen? Yeah, so that I, I think is one of the most fascinating aspects of Jane's life, and that's that that is something that I hope you know when when people read the book will, will be a big takeaway. So Jane was unable to have children, so in 1942, um, she she did have an abortion, you know, and because it was not legal here in the United States and wasn't safe, um, it went really bad, and so that rendered her unable to have children. And so she wanted to adopt. And so um, she, she did adopt one child here in America. And so she wanted to adopt a second one. And she was in Europe. Um, she had been invited to um, participate in a, in a royal command performance. And when she was there, this was after the war, she knew that there were orphanages in Western Europe that were overflowing, you know, because of the war. And so she went and visited, hoping that she would be able to adopt a child. So I know she, I think, visited an orphanage in Italy and in Germany. And just because of um, restrictions, I know, I think the Italian one, because she wasn't Catholic, she wouldn't be allowed to adopt. And I think just because restrictions, because she was American, she could not adopt out of these orphanages and was very vocal about it to the press. And you know, these articles about Jane wanting to adopt ran in, in the, the British newspapers. And so a woman, uh, she was, she was an Irish woman living in London, um, you know, had a, had a child who was three years old, who she um, just couldn't take care of, felt that Jane would be able to give this child a good life. And so she somehow got into got to go to Jane's hotel room with this toe-headed child and put him on the bed and Jane was there with her mom and said you know what I want you to take my child and you know Jane again because she was an international movie star and could get that red carpet treatment was able to expedite the paperwork so she didn't just like steal this child like she you know all the paperwork was there um and it was on the up and up but it was all done very quickly. And so she did come home, you know, she got on the plane with this child. And, you know, I think at the, the time, there, there were, there were issues with Irish children. Um, you know, there was like this, I don't know if you want to call it a black market pipeline, but I guess that could be an apt description. There were a lot of Irish children that were being sent to the United States to be adopted by wealthy Americans. And so, um, when this happened, it was so high profile. The press absolutely covered the fact that, oh, yeah, Jane's coming back with a kid. And a member of parliament decided to make an example out of her. And it really did become like an international incident where he was railing about it. And the FBI here in the United States felt obligated to open up an investigation into it. So, you know, it did become an international incident. Um it really, you know, left a horrible taste in her mouth. Like ultimately, she 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 did keep the child, um, and then and then was able to adopt another in the United States. But it was such a terrible experience, and then and she did think it was so ridiculous that yes, we had these instances of these orphanages, you know, and all of these international restrictions um, that made it so difficult for them to be adopted um, 
into different countries that she began, you know, advocating for that. And she started a foundation called WAIF. And WAIF became a fundraising arm for international social services that helped raise money to, you know, increase the number of caseworkers that could kind of process these adoptions. She worked um, to get uh, to get kind of caps lifted um, so that children could come to the United States and be adopted. And, you know, and this was an organization she ran for like 40 years. Um, they did lobby Congress to ease restrictions on international adoption. Later on, when the foster care system became more predominant, she advocated for funding for that. Um Everything from then on, everything she did was always at the back of her mind, like, how can this benefit WAIF? So, you know, if she's in Hawaii filming The Revolt of Mamie Stover, she's looking around going, how can I get a chapter of WAIF started here? If she's, um, you know, going to be on location or Howard Hughes wants her to like fly somewhere for publicity, she's working in, okay, well, how can I get him to pay for a plane ticket to Washington, D.C. so I can go talk to these Congress members? So, you know, it, it wasn't just something she did to, to look good. It was something she was like very, um, very involved in. They, you know, I think it was, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of kids, I think, found homes because of the efforts of WAIF. And so um, I hope it's something that people, you know, will acknowledge about her. And she was very, you know, and she, she didn't do it for the recognition. Um, I don't think she got enough recognition in her life for the work she did with WAIF. And so I hope um, when people read this book, it is something that uh, they'll recognize her for. Yeah, and even though it is uh, 60 years later, it is still very complicated to to go through an international adoption. There, there is uh, there is a lot of paperwork and a lot of procedures and and everything. Yeah, and a lot of politics. You know, d- depending on like what country is and what's going on in the world. Yeah, there 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 is a lot of politics. So it still is complicated, but then well, at the time I suppose much more complicated because of uh, of how long everything took and everything had to be done by by mail and and everything. So and. What is her legacy apart from 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 her foundation nowadays? How, how do you think she's remembered apart from being uh, also the the actress uh, opposite Marilyn Monroe in Gentlemen Prefer Blondes? Yeah, I mean, I think you know that that's certainly you know on the surface it's it is you know opposite Marilyn and Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, and then you know the woman lounging lounging on a hay bale with a gun in the Outlaw. So that's certainly what people know. As I mentioned, you know. Those of us who were around in the 70s and 80s do remember her like as the, the spokesperson for the Playtex bra commercial. Um, you know, I do think, you know, her, her organization, you know, should be her legacy. Um, and so I hope people identify that. You know, she is like she is a studio system movie star. You know, she is a product of um of Hollywood. And it's just a type of movie star that, that really doesn't exist anymore. Um, you know, and she's, you know, obviously one of many, but I do think, as I mentioned, I think she, she stands apart from so many of them because I think she was so comfortable in her own skin. She was so incredibly self-possessed. Um, and I think she was just so devoid of ego. And, you know, for me, like getting to know her in that light, like I, I, I certainly tried to, to, to use her as, as a guiding light in some ways, because I think that that's an incredible way to live, you know, to, to, to just be confident in yourself, to be comfortable in your own skin, while at the same time, you know, genuinely wanting to see other people succeed, wanting to prop other people up. Um, I think that's a great legacy. And I think it's, I think she, you know, in many ways, 
can kind of serve as a model of, of hopefully how we can conduct ourselves and how we interact with the people around us. And um, that's what I think she's kind of helped me um, try to do. I'll never be as successful as Jane in doing that. But um, but I think that, that that's an incredible legacy. So thank you very much, uh, Christina, for being here to speak about uh, Mean, Moody, Magnificent, Jane Russell and the Marketing of a Hollywood Legend, published by the University Press of Kentucky. Thank you very much. It has been a pleasure. Thank you. It's been fun.